Hey y'all, before we begin, I want to make sure you know about my live parent workshops. One Friday a month, I host a live virtual parent workshop on topics related to raising neurodivergent kids and teens. We cover topics like how to talk to your child about their diagnosis, how to support negative self-talk, and navigating school for your child. You can register for workshops one at a time, or you can become an all-access subscriber on Substack for instant access to all the workshops and replays. To browse the workshop library and subscribe, go to learnwithdremily.substack.com and click Parent Workshops. Hey y'all, before we begin, if you're a school administrator who loves watching your teachers and students thrive, but you feel your staff needs more training to meet the needs of such a diverse group of learners, I am here for you. I am now offering professional development for pre-K through 8th grade educators, both in-person and virtually. For more information about pricing and scheduling, go to learnwithdremily.com schools to get started. We all have a different, you know, inner experience and we all have, all of our experiences are correct and valid. When we are not curious about another person's inner experience, when we assume to understand what's going on with them, we really are at risk being wrong. We're at risk of invalidating their experience. Welcome to Learn with Dr. Emily, the podcast where parents and teachers come together for neurodivergent youth. I'm your host, Dr. Emily King, child psychologist and former school psychologist, and I am on a mission to help everyone understand that nurturing neurodivergent children isn't about changing them, but about changing us. Each week, I share my thoughts on topics related to child development, mental health, parenting, education, and parent-teacher collaboration. You can read more on my Substack at learnwithdremily.substack.com or listen here. So let's get started with today's topic. Hey y'all, welcome back to the Learn with Dr. Emily podcast. Today I am so excited to welcome Kelly Mahler, who I have had an internet colleague friendship with over the last um, several years, I guess. You know, I first came into contact with Kelly through Perfectum in my DIR floor time training and then have followed her and all she has to say about interoception. So if you've never heard that word or you're wanting to learn more, that's what today's podcast is going to be all about. So Kelly, welcome. Oh, thank you so much, Emily, for having me here. I'm so excited for this conversation. So a little background on Kelly. Kelly earned her doctorate in occupational therapy from Misericordia University in Dallas, Pennsylvania. She has been an occupational therapist for 20 years, serving school-aged children and adults. Kelly is the winner of multiple awards, including the 2020 American Occupational Therapy Association Emerging and Innovative Practice Award and the Mom's Choice Gold Medal. She is an adjunct faculty member at Elizabethtown College in Elizabethtown, Pennsylvania, as well as Misericordia University in Dallas. Pennsylvania. (laughs) Kelly is co-principal investigator in several research projects pertaining to topics such as interoception, self-regulation, trauma, and autism. So we are going to dive right into talking about just what is interoception. Um, Most people don't know this word or are surprised to find that we actually have more than five senses. Yes, absolutely. I know m- many of us learn about the the five senses, right? And um, smell, sight, sound, touch, and taste. But 
what many of us don't know is that there are three, like you said, um, additional senses, the hidden senses, if you will. And so these senses more are pulling in information from inside of our bodies and interoception happens to be one of these inside or hidden senses. And interoception's main job is to pull in information about the condition of our body. So what is the condition of our stomach or how is our stomach feeling? Or what is the condition of our bladder? How is our bladder feeling or our heart or our lungs or our colon or our skin or muscles, um, our eyes? Like just we have um, interoception helps us to be aware and understand how so many different body parts are feeling or what is the condition of those body parts. And we talk about how interoception helps us to notice all of these body sensations. So if we talk about like your stomach, how your stomach is feeling or what are the sensations in your stomach, like some people talk about like an empty feeling in their stomach um, or they might talk about um, like an upset stomach or maybe they talk about like sometimes people talk about like that butterfly feeling they have in their stomach. And so that's interoception at work helping us to really notice and understand all of those sensations coming from our body. And um, those sensations serve as really important clues to helping us take care of our body, Um, letting us know what our body needs and like kind of like what our emotional status is of our body and, and so forth. Yeah. So speaking first about expected or neurotypical development in children, Take us through what we know about interoceptive awareness and the development of children. When do when do babies start to notice this? And then um, how does that evolve as they get older in terms of being able to express awareness about it? Good question. And there are researchers trying to figure that out. Interoception, mm-hmm. it is the newest sense, um, although right. it has been first defined back in 1902. Four or something like that. So it, it has been talked about, but it's really only making its way to like the general pop public, like myself, um, just in recent the recent decade, and and so we <clears throat> know very little about the development of interoception. But what we do know, if you think about most infants, are born into this world noticing how their body feels. Right, they're born noticing comfort or discomfort, and they express that comfort or discomfort in in their own way. And then as they grow through their experiences with their caregivers and with the world around them, they start to learn more detail about their body. They learn, like when they're first born, they probably don't know, oh, this feeling means for me I'm hungry or, oh, this feeling Mm -hmm. means I'm cold. Like they just are noticing discomfort and expressing it. And that caregiver stepping in and meeting those needs, trying to figure out what's going on in the infant's body. But as that infant grows, as I said, they, they begin to notice and understand more detail about that body. So they start to they start to connect like, oh, okay, this feeling in my body means for me I'm hungry. And oh, when I eat, this feeling in my body feels better. And so they start to make all of those connections and really learn about their body and how to take care of their body. Yeah. So you bring up a good point with the cross-section of the, you know, caregivers really guessing what a uncomfortable young child, baby, toddler needs before a child can communicate it or reach for it. Or, you know, I always talk with parents who um, are so distressed because their child is like, you know, into everything, like climbing things. I'm like, that's good. They're like going for it. They're solving their own problems. And there's something driving them to need that thing or want that thing. Um, when I work with really active kids, you know, parents are distressed, but I can often say like that they're 
they're feeling something and they're they're going for it and they're problem solving it, cognitively problem solving it. But talk a little bit more about when this goes awry in terms of, um, not necessarily awry, but it's hard for parents to predict because of maybe communication weaknesses or a child is, um, you know, having weaknesses in their interoceptive system and is not able to feel hungry or feel the need to go to the bathroom or feel that um, pain threshold and and what um, parents can do? That's a loaded question that we'll go into different parts on, but what comes to mind first? Yeah. So I, I hear um, you talking about two different things, and this is kind of how we talk about that there's two main, I guess, ways that interoceptive awareness can be derailed. Um, if you will. So um, at our best understanding at this point is that there are many neurodivergent people born into this world with interoception differences, just like they're born into this world with differences in other sensor in other senses as well. And we know that these differences can um, affect how aware they are of their internal bodily sensations. And so it's kind of like we all have a range of how aware we are of those internal interoceptive sensation. Like some of us might be more aware of how our body feels and others of us might be less aware. So there's this range of awareness and at each end point of that range, there's these extreme points. And so we know that for some people, including uh, many neurodivergence, they could be experiencing a muted inner, exp- inner experience. So at that point of the extreme, like their inner sensations are quiet and they might completely miss important body signals. Like you said, like noticing hunger, noticing the signs of being sleepy or noticing the signs of a building meltdown. Or for some people that have a muted inner experience, they do notice sensation, but only when those sensations get to a really big place. Mm -hmm. Like they only notice they're hungry when they're hangry and it is an emergency feeling like food right now in this moment right? Or they don't notice that they're getting overwhelmed until they are in a meltdown. Uh, So those signals, they're missing the smaller, like the subtle signals, letting them know that something is a little off in their body. And and then they're noticing these big feelings. Um, So that's one um, IA or interceptive awareness extreme. But if you go to the all the way to the other end of that noticing, there are a lot of neurodivergent people that um, have a very intense inner experience and they notice a lot of different sensations all at once. They're not sure what are important to pay attention to, um, or they might have one or two body signals that are just super strong and intense and it just pulls all their attention away from the rest of their body. Um, so like I supported a client a few years ago that could feel every meal he ate moving through his digestive tract. Wow. So to me, like that is a very intense inner experience. And it just was all encompassing, of course. And so of distracting. So distracting. Yes. So we have these IA extremes. People can be born um, into the world experiencing them. But we also know that for some neurodivergent people, their interceptive awareness can be maybe further impacted, um, or maybe they were, I mean, we don't know, maybe they were born into this world with like pretty good awareness of their body. And then it's derailed through lived experience through, you know, many different factors, whether perhaps there's a mismatch between what's going on in their body and what people are guessing about their body. Um, And so we talk about like, especially like we're trying to get away from emotion labeling, because when we label someone's emotions, (laughs) we're at high risk of 
being wrong about what emotion they're feeling. And I was trained to do that. I was trained mm-hmm. to label my clients' emotions because it was helpful, and I'm undoing that in myself. But um, so there's just uh, so many factors that can derail their inner experience. Um, and I will go down that path if you want me to, but I'll stay yeah, there. Yeah, well, what <laughs> I'm starting to think about is, are things like potty training and, you know, and things like, you know, just eating in general, all the things that go along with eating. And so either one of those, I would love to talk about both. They're the main two things I get asked about where there's this cross-section of OT and psychology with the anxiety that's coming up and also the parent-child interaction that is so um, integrated into these situations. So what might you see in a neurodivergent child who has some, um, you know, IA differences in terms of toileting, whether it's daytime or or bedwetting at night? Mm-hmm they might just not notice the feeling of needing to pee or poop and just seem completely unaware of those Mm -hmm. feelings. Um, They might be noticing the feeling in a last minute way. And it is like, (gasps) it's like a big surprise. (laughs) And they're like dashing to the bathroom. Um, So they're, they're not noticing those feelings until they're really intense. Or I do have clients that they are frequent seeking out that they're going to the bathroom a lot because they're feeling that feeling in their bladder and their colon in a really big way. It makes them very anxious. And so they're getting in there. And so I think toileting is extremely complicated, but interception is a really, really big part of it. It's mm-hmm. not the only part, but also it's like involved in being able to notice like if you're wet or dry or if you um, if your muscles when you're sitting on the toilet to void, if they feel tight or loose, like you had, there's a lot of complicated factors um, involved and interception is definitely at, at play. Yeah. And what about um, nighttime wedding? Because I know there's a lot of kids that I I work with and have worked with over the years that have mastered toileting when they're awake, but their system is not waking up in in the middle of the night. So um, I'm assuming that this is just an an under-responsive system and it's not waking you up. But what can you, what thoughts do you have for parents who are listening to that? Yeah, if that is due in part to interception, then a lot of times we see major improvements as we go about our interception work and helping kids be more aware of their bodies during the daytime and that that filters over to nighttime. But, you know, there's other factors that could be going on with um, with nighttime bedwetting, like constipation is a really big, mm-hmm. um, a really big curiosity there too. But if it's yeah. if everything else has been ruled out and interception is probably, you know, the key, then we see a lot of improvements in that. Yeah. So what might a parent or teacher notice about eating and and food throughout the day? And this is one of the reasons that I'm so passionate about helping parents and teachers communicate because some of the investigating we do about toileting and eating um, and sometimes communication has to do with talking about what they're capable of in different settings. Because if they can do it in one setting, the skill is emerging. And so we've got to try to recreate that. But what might um, a child with IA differences be looking like with eating? Um, Well, some big signs that come to mind, they might be relying on other people to remind them to eat or drink. So they're not noticing Like just a routine. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're not noticing. They're not eating based on the way their body feels. It's based on, you know, some external factor, whether it's like someone reminding them to eat or like you said, like it's just, you know, it's 
12 o'clock, it's time to eat kind of thing. Also, on the other hand, I have so many clients that are high-frequency eaters. So they are seeking, seeking, seeking out a lot of food nonstop. And that can be due in part to interception too because Mm. maybe they're not noticing the feelings of being full. Or maybe they're noticing a feeling in their body. Um, This can happen a lot too. We didn't talk about this, but someone might be noticing a feeling in their body and they're not sure what that feeling means for them. So they might be misconnecting it to, Mm -hmm. so they're noticing a feeling in their body and they are misconnecting it to hunger. So they're like seeking out that, that food because they think it's hunger, but it's really something else. Um, or there's another piece to it that many times I have clients that know how they feel. Um, there's, so they're noticing that body signal. They know what it means, but they're not sure what to do about it. So sometimes when there's high frequency eaters, they're not sure what to do to regulate their interceptive system. So they're just left with like a basic, you know, action, like eat, I'm going to try to eat. It's my Mm -hmm. best attempt at regulating my system right now. And that's all like really encompassing of interception and interception helps us to notice our body signals, help us connect it to the meaning. Like, what does this feeling mean for me? And then what can I do about it? What action can I take to regulate my body? Yeah. One thing you said really resonates with my work and this um, helping kids figure out, is it a feeling that I'm having in my gut or is this a physical need of hunger that I have? So as we both know in our work with kids with lots of big feelings, but also, and many times it can be a child that has really big feelings and they might not be sensing their hunger as much. And so they may fall into those patterns of, well, eating feels good. So I'm going to do that or just like anything else that they find that feels good. So in your work, how do you help kids tell the difference and parents and teachers help kids tell the difference between the emotional signals and the physical hunger or pain or toileting signals. Yeah. Um, well, this was really new to my work, but um, like I was, this was not on my radar 10 years ago before knowing about interception. I was starting like at the emotion level, like you're talking about and mm-hmm. like saying like, when you're hungry, do this, when you're frustrated, do this. Um, but we're really rewinding a little bit and starting at the body signal level. So helping kids to become more connected to their body, to notice body sensations in a variety of different body parts. And then we work towards like, now you're clearly noticing We've had a lot of practice, safe practice, noticing how your body feels. And now we're going to help you connect those signals to the meaning for you. And, um, you know, it is really, it can't be a one-size-fits-all process. I know that Mm -hmm. makes it easier for us, but (laughs) the way your body feels when you're hungry is completely different than mine. So it's not something that we can teach. We can't say hunger is growling in your stomach because that's not true for everyone. So that's why we're starting at the body signal level. We're helping them to discover you know, their body signals, and then we help them. Okay, so you're noticing this pattern in your body. Like maybe you're noticing that your heart is racing and you have this tight feeling in your chest. What does that mean for you? And helping them to make those connections. I want to say hi to all the teachers out there learning with me. Thank you so much for being an educator. I see you and appreciate you and how you keep showing up for our students every single day. In my work as a school psychologist, I know that it helps to have a way to stay organized when thinking about your students' needs. That's why I created two free resources for you. 
The regulation roster helps you notice how your students seek emotional regulation and keep track of it, and the reframing behavior worksheet helps you problem solve emotional dysregulation when it happens. For these free downloads, go to learnwithdremily.com slash roster or learnwithdremily.com slash reframing behavior to get started. I want to welcome any parents who are new to this journey. If your child has just been identified as autistic or diagnosed with ADHD, learning differences, or is twice exceptional, welcome. You are in the right place. You may also be overwhelmed by all the calls and emails you're having to make to providers as you're building your child's team. That's why I created the Referral Tracker, which is a free download at learnwithdremily.com tracker. This free resource explains what each provider does and gives you a template to keep track of all your research. Just go to learnwithdremily.com slash tracker to get started. Yeah, so let's go deeper into helping teachers and parents because it's going to apply. But I want to talk about helping teachers recognize when emotions are happening in the classroom because emotions are going to happen at school, learning and is a vulnerable experience where kids are going to be faced with frustration. So even if it's not related to physical pain or physical hunger or toileting, all those things are physical and they are more, kids are more aware of those first. But then we're asking, you know, five, six, seven-year-olds to be faced with a challenging learning task or a friend that took their thing or whatever emotion is coming up for them. So where can teachers start in helping their students learn that this emotion also has a body feeling? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So good question. And this really depends on the classroom, yep. the age, yep, totally. you know, what's going on. So I'm going to give some the generic, <laughs> generic ideas. So I think maybe one of the first things, and we recommend this to um, educators and to, to parents, um, mm-hmm. caregivers, um, is just to start talking out loud about the way your body feels. Like, yes. that's just sending a message that, like, oh, like, oh, I see my teacher <laughs> noticing the way their body feels. That must be an important thing to do. Like, I I wish I knew about interception when my kids were, le- were younger because I was not, like, this, the interception vocabulary modeling that I have a body and my body is giving me really important clues. Like, I was not modeling that out loud for them. So I think that's, like, a big shift for a lot of us, but it it once you kind of shift your your brain and thinking about interception, it's not something more you have to do. It's just kind of like in the moment as you're going through your daily routines, you can say like, oh my gosh, like my hands feel so warm when I'm holding my cup of tea. Or, you know, if you're running around on the playground, oh my goodness, my heart is racing, you know, at, when I'm playing tag with you. So just talking out loud or like, gosh, my stomach is growling. I really need food. So just modeling, getting that out yeah, there and that I, there I, is a body. Yeah. And I just want to jump in and say, I feel this way as a therapist sometimes too, that culturally we try to hide or we feel embarrassed about our body signals, like our stomach growls and we apologize. Or like, I might need to go to the bathroom in the middle of a play therapy session. And I'm like trying to hold it to not interrupt the session. And lately, I mean, in the last year, I'm, I just tell a child, oh, I have got to go to the bathroom. I will be right back, you know? And so you're modeling these things and um, you're so right. Like we need to catch ourselves and think about 
are we getting, you know, an embarrassed feeling that we've, of course, been just conditioned to think and feel because that's going to block us from teaching our kids what to notice. Yeah, absolutely. I think you raised such a good point. Like we are conditioned as a society and this is a generalization, of course, but we tend to not slow down and notice the way our body feels. And if we even do slow down and notice our body, we receive messages that it's embarrassing. It's weak to listen to your body. You know, you must push through no pain, no gain. So yeah, I think that, um, talking out loud about the way our body feels is a strategy for ourselves too. Um, It's really helpful for our kids, but it also gets us more in tune to our body and just like, you know, empowering ourselves, like, you know, listen to our body. It's giving us really important signals of what we need. Yeah. So what would you say to teachers who um, are really struggling to pinpoint a behavior that a kid might be having And I start to think about like noticing the patterns of like, is it always this time of day or is it always, um, you know, right after they eat or something related to a routine that the child might not be noticing. But I'm just curious when you think about the school day and you think about your work with clients, what are some common times and patterns that teachers need to be maybe checking in with their kids about their bodies? Because there might be behaviors if their kids are not checking in or noticing their own bodies. Yeah. I I think you gave a really good example about the eating. And, um, you know, I had a student referral. um, It was right before the pandemic and the team was just so, um, I I just love the description of the student. They said, he's an afternoon learner. Mornings are always super rough. They progressively get worse. And then after lunch, he's like a different person. And I'm like, (laughs) okay, well, let's think about this through an interception lens. Like what possibly could be going on here? Like, what is that telling us? Like, It was a respectful guess. He was non-speaking. We were trying to make, you know, some respectful guesses here. But, um, and, and we're like, well, I wonder if he, you know, his body needs food, but he's not noticing that, or he is noticing that and he's expressing it and we're not reading his signals. Right. So, we really um, got better at offering um, snacks in the um, morning time, and that helped a lot. And we also started communicating at home and asking about like what happened, you know, what were his eating patterns um, before school, which was also really helpful because then we weren't guessing every day. Like if he came in with a big, he ate a big breakfast that morning, you know, we kind of had that information. And it was really helpful. So, and that's why parent-teacher collaboration and just communication is so incredibly helpful, especially for our non-speaking students and clients, because we are guessing, right? And we're doing the best we can. But like we've said already, every single kid is different. Every single nervous system is different. So we can, you know, it, that's what that's why I love this work. And it's probably, you know, one of the reasons that we all get excited that every day is a little bit different. But yes, I often will say to teachers, you know, they will say, I can't find the pattern or there is no pattern. This this behavior is just random. And I um, so I know you probably get this question too, but I always say there there is a pattern. We just can't see it or it's just mm-hmm. not really obvious to us or they can't communicate it or maybe even feel it in the first place. Do you have any stories that resonate with that? Well, there was a teacher that I just heard from, and she took my interception training, but she's been doing using the interception curriculum in her classroom. I think she teaches kindergarten or first graders, and she had an autistic um, student in her classroom. 
And um, every day after recess, he would have a really hard time and they couldn't figure out the pattern. They're like, you know, is it too unstructured at recess? Is it, you know, they just couldn't figure out. And they were doing some interoception exper- experiments in her classroom. And they were, we, what we do is we try to build awareness one body part at a time to kind of reduce the cognitive demand of interoception work. So we, we might do things like in the classroom to notice the way your hands feel or your feet or your nose or your heart. And so they were doing um, some activities on feet and uh, learning about the different ways your feet can feel and noticing your feet. And he, um, during the experiments, everything he kept saying, fiery feet, fiery feet. And this teacher was so beautifully curious. Like she was just so, like she's so thoughtful like and deep about like, why does he keep saying fiery feet? And she's like thinking about, she was thinking about recess and I don't even know how she made the connection of this pattern, but she was wondering like, could it be the way his fiery feet felt after recess. And so she asked his parents to send in an extra pair of shoes and socks, and they were going to try changing them um, after recess to see what happened. And so they invited him the next day to change his shoes and socks. They explained a little bit why, see how his feet would feel after doing that, because they were Mm -hmm. on the feet um, week. And um, his meltdowns and his behavior completely changed after recess. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, they're not all always that like easy. And that teacher was amazing at being so curious and making that connection and giving a platform or an opportunity for that student to share about his internal experience and, you know, about the fiery feet and making that connection for him and how they could help him with that fiery feet feeling. Uh, So, yeah, I think interoception um, work really helps us to gain some of those insights that can make that pattern finding a little bit easier. It wasn't something I was exploring before knowing about interoception. Um, so the insights we get are so profound sometimes and really help me get closer to finding the pattern. Mm-hmm. Will you tell us more about your curriculum and how you use it with teachers to help them understand interoception? Yeah, so we have the interoception curriculum, and it's divided into three main sections. So section one is called body, and it's a lot of different lessons helping students to notice the way their body feels. And like I said, we chunk it into one body part at a time. So noticing how my hands feel, noticing how my feet feel, and so forth. And then we get to the section two, which is emotion. And that's where we start to connect the body signals they're now noticing to the meaning for them. What does all of this mean in my body? What emotion am I experiencing? Is it like a physical emotion, like hunger or pain? Or is it um, more of a affective emotion, like frustration or anxiety? And then then we get to the action section, which is section three. And that's using a lot of feel-good actions to help regulate your body, regulate those body signals and emotions. So that's really the framework. And uh, it can be a lot of fun. We're having so much fun doing this in, cl- in a variety of classrooms. We're working really hard on I'm working with a couple school systems right now on rolling this out as a tier one intervention during their social emotional learning because a lot of the social emotional curricula right now are amazing. Like I'm so excited about like this whole initiative, right? It's so important. But like many of the the curricula we have right now are too high. Um, they start yeah. at the emotion level, like identifying your Yeah, so explain your what you mean by too high. Yeah. So like identifying your emotions, identifying emotions of other people, like that all starts with your body. Like your body signals give emotions meaning. Like you come to understand what anxiety means 
through your body signals. Your body signals are clues to anxiety for you. So when we start at the emotion level, it's like too high. It's too cognitive. We need to start at the body and mm-hmm. then work our way towards the emotion piece and the regulation piece. And so much of education, in my opinion, is too cognitive or too high. And so I, I'm with you on kind of, you know, all the, you know, social emotional learning funding and curriculum and talk is also good. But if we run into roadblocks or we feel like we're spinning our wheels at some point, or we feel like this is, you know, of course, what I think has come about in clinical work with like social skills groups that are kind of done in a vacuum, they are not, um, they're skills based, but they're not integrated with a child feeling how they feel in a, in an authentic, naturally occurring social interaction. And this is similar in that helping kids understand, you know, when y'all have heard me talk, all the listeners have heard me talk from top down and bottom up because of my floor time training and meaning cognitive down to body and body up to cognitive. And that's why I love OT so much because y'all just think body up like all the time. And my work has changed so much over the years because of my collaboration with OTs, because I think every psychologist will tell you we are not trained like that. (laughs) We are trained in a very cognitive, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy way. But when you work with neurodivergent kids who, you know, are are not going to be able to explain exactly how they're feeling until they're older or not even then, it's still very confusing to them. So what would you want educators to better understand if, if they're listening and you could tell them kind of one thing, what would you just want them to better understand? Hmm. That's a good question. What is, I had to pick one thing because there's a lot of Okay, maybe not one. Give me your top five. (laughs) For me, it's that like curiosity that that like kind of, like you were just saying about that teacher being so curious that that, if that's not there, it's so hard for other things to unfold and to notice. But yeah, I just, if you could get teachers in a room, what would you want them to understand about interception? I mean, that is the one thing that we just say over and over again is that we all have a different, you know, inner experience and we all have, all of our experiences are correct and valid. And I think we accidentally, when we are not curious about another person's inner experience, when we assume to understand what's going on with them, we really are at risk being wrong. We're at risk of invalidating their experience we're at risk of causing more inner confusion for them. Like if we're saying it's, it's one thing or you're always treated as a neurodivergent student as, you know, doing things on purpose or, you know, mm-hmm. breaking the rules on purpose or whatever it is, you know, and your your inner experience is invalidated over and over again, it just compounds those interception um, difficulties because you really, many of my clients, they were clear on how they were feeling, but other people were co- continually labeling what they thought was going on. And so they're like, well, all these other people are telling me it's one thing and I think it's another thing, but I'm probably the person that's wrong here. Um, So I think one of the biggest things is just to stay curious. Like you said, know that each person has a different inner experience, avoid labeling a student's experience and, and, and seek those deep reasons as to what you're seeing on the outside. What are some questions a teacher could ask if she or he sees a student in distress or not necessarily distress, it could be shut down or zoning out or confusion, um, to get at, like, try to, to not label, but to 
get it is to stay curious and get it maybe what that feeling is in their body. Yeah. I mean, it, it depends on the student. Like some of my students, I don't say or ask them anything when they're mm-hmm. in distress because that's oh, what they need. They, right. But um, when you, when they are regulated and I might say like, um, and I might like give a observation. So for example, like I see like you're pacing back and forth really fast. Like I wonder what that means, or I wonder what you notice in your body. Um, so I, I like to use I wonder statements, but you can also use questions like I I um, see you wiggling in your chair. I wonder if you notice that too, or how does your body feel right now? Or I see your hands going like this. Um, how do your hands feel it right now? Or I wonder what's going on. Um, so just bringing them back to the body instead of that emotion piece, and helping them to connect to their body and notice their body and what's going on. Yeah. While I have you here, I have to ask if you could design your ideal elementary classroom, (laughs) what would it look like? What would you have available? What kind of seating? I mean, just what would that look like? Well, it depends on the age. If it's like maybe maybe uh, second grade and under, there would sure. be very little like traditional desks and chairs in the room. There would be, I love all the alternative seating initiatives out there. Like there would be so many different options for each student to do what they need in their body in order to learn. Like in our I think we're getting better in that, that people's body, like each person or each student's body needs something different in order for them to learn the classroom. But until so recently, it was like, sit, sit right, you know, sit still, eyes forward. And that, that again, was invalidating a lot of students in our experience because their body was saying, I need to move in order mm-hmm. to learn. You know, I need to look out the window in order for me to be able to process the teacher's voice, you know, whatever it is. So now that we're being, we're embracing more diversity in the classroom for all students, I think that is so helpful to their interception learning because they're allowed to listen to their body. They're allowed to learn in a way that feels safe um, and regulating to their body. So it would have a lot of different options. Maybe each day there would be some interception time (laughs) to help them do some experiments, notice how their body is feeling. Maybe a ticket in and out the door would be for them to like share about a certain body part. You know, I I would have that embedded um, for sure in my dream scenario. In your dream (laughs) K2 classroom. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And then the goal, of course, is by the time kids get into third through fifth grade where there is a lot more... um, you know, academic and and longer periods of attention spent and learning that they've figured out what their body needs to focus and learn, right? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Then they're ready for the academic demand most of the time. But, you know, there's just so much pressure. I mean, I don't have to tell your audience this, especially the educator side, but like there's just so much pressure, academic pressure on, you know, what they need to fulfill in the classroom and that there's no time, especially in those K through two, like, that that the the premise of that curriculum, in my opinion, should be about learning about yourself. You know, learning how you best learn, learning about how you are going to thrive in this world, and then we're setting that foundation for them to be able to meet all the academic demands as they grow. Mm-hmm. I always say K through two is learning how to be a student, mm-hmm. and everything else will eventually come. Okay, Kelly, thank you so so much. Is there? Um, ha- tell us how people can learn more about you and your work, and bring you to a school if. Um, if they want to. Okay, awesome. Yeah, you can check me out on my website. It's kelly-mahler.com. And I am on all social media, but probably the best place if you are on Facebook, 
We have an interoception group. It's called Interoception, the eighth sensory system. And there's thousands of people in there. So if you're looking for more free information or you have a question, it's a really great community to ask um, and lots of supportive people. And on my website, we have lots of free resources as well. Awesome. And I, that's definitely a great Facebook group. It's really active and lots of good discussions in there. So thank you so much for your time. And this is a great conversation. And I, I hope we just all keep learning together. Thanks, Emily. This has been Learn with Dr. Emily at the podcast. For more resources, including both parent, teacher, and school resources, visit learnwithdremily.com or read my substack at learnwithdremily.substack.com. Also, we are publishing this podcast weekly, so make sure you're subscribed by pressing the plus, follow, or subscribe button on whatever podcast app you're using right now. This podcast is edited by EarFluence. All information discussed on this podcast is for educational purposes only. If you have immediate concerns about your child, please reach out to a mental health or medical professional. I'm Dr. Emily King, and we will keep learning together next week.